Welcome to Power Yourself, where I talk about the most important topic in the world, you. Welcome to another episode of Power Yourself. Today's topic is going to be on mental health. We're going to look at addressing how we can support people we love as they go through some of the challenges tied to mental health. With me today, I'm privileged enough to be able to have a fellow Newfoundlander come to the stage here. Uh, Chris McWilliam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. So as Jill said, yes, I grew up in Newfoundland, Collier's Newfoundland to be exact. And uh, I love to bake. I love to cook. I've been with my husband now for 18 years, married for two. And we have two cats, Jimmy and Bobby. Um, so we spend a lot of time uh, traveling when we can, also doing things around the house. I've also gotten really into gardening. And um, I've also, I am now working as an occupational therapist in community mental health and addictions and have been for many years now, before I was 14 years. And I completed uh, my first degree actually at Acadia, which brought me to move to Nova Scotia, where I'm now living in Halifax. And I always knew I wanted to help people. I just wasn't sure in what capacity until I saw an occupational therapist working with my mom. And I noticed the different things that they were working my, with my mom doing. And so I just discovered the broad, um, the broad variety of positions and roles for occupational therapy. So that brought me into mental health. And I think like, so for myself, because I know when we were talking and you mentioned occupational therapy and I'm like, oh, I don't understand the tie to mental health. So if you don't mind making that connection for the listeners here, how does occupational therapy actually tie in to that supporting role for mental health? Yeah, and you're so right, Jill. That is like people when they think about occupational therapy aren't really sure in general. They might think about returning to work. And then when I tell them I'm an occupational therapist in, in mental health, um, they always wonder about that too, even more. So it's all about returning people to functioning. And I look at it as what you want, need, or have to do in life while living with a mental illness or trying to manage mental health challenges. And then as an occupational therapist, how do you support that really? So really looking at, you know, what's important to a person, what meaningful activities they enjoy. So it could be um, doing activities that are meaningful to them to help manage their mental health. It also could be looking at coping strategies to manage different symptoms of a mental illness, such as, you know, coping strategies to manage worry with anxiety, um, trying to get yourself up and going again after uh, experiencing depression or even living with depression in that moment too the challenges faced with it. So trying to get people back to things that they want to do through things that they identify as meaningful to them. I love that. Yeah, because for me, I have to admit, like the occupational therapy, I've seen it more as like physical getting people back to it versus what you're talking a lot about is the mental process as well, right? Of getting people back into that role, back into the day-to-day, whatever that is. Yeah, because, you know, people discover or re-engage in activities that are meaningful to them. You know, I give myself an example. I love to bake and cook. And so, you know, when I'm, I guess, feeling that urge to do that, it helps my mental health in turn. Or it might help me deal with a bad day or whatnot. I love it. You're talking my language here. So it's about finding those things that we kind of gravitate that bring us, let's say, a little bit of joy 
to help us through more of those, let's be honest, really troubling times that can hit as well. Yeah. And, you know, and then try to get that behavior, we would call it behavior activation piece to get back into things that they, that they do enjoy. And then in turn could probably help them feel better over time. Okay. Uh, so with that being said, like, and it's easy for us, like, I think it would be super easy, Chris, to have a conversation just solely on the tips and right. tools that you can give to people. So I know today's focus is going to be more on, you know, if we have a loved one maybe going through this, how can we support? But I think if you're okay with it, before we jump to that role or that gear, is there anything maybe if someone here is listening and they find they're struggling right now with their own mental health, is there anything that you could, any advice that you would give maybe? I think one of the first things that comes to mind is reach out to someone you're close to. You know, whether that's one person you want to share things with, or maybe it's a group of a couple of friends they share things with. I find that can be really helpful. And then also I think to be really mindful of your sleep patterns and what they look like. Also, if you're getting any type of physical activity during the day, it doesn't have to involve going to the gym. I really noticed a difference in my own mental health through this pandemic, trying to just get out for walks when different things were closed. It just made a difference in some of the stressors. Well, it's huge. And I think also, Sorry. yeah, it is it's huge. Yeah, it's yeah. huge because it's like not only like I think when you talk about being outside and even walking, like it's that mindfulness, first of all. And then it's also like if you look at like you know, body-wise, it's releasing those good endorphins too. So it's almost like mm -hmm. a two to win <laughs> kind of event. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even just thinking about other activities that you like to do that doesn't necessarily involve even going at that pace for walking. It could be gardening. It could be a craft. Just trying to really look at some of those things too and to try to be intentional with your time as best you can. Because, you know, there's a lot of research shows with a snowball effect of our thinking. If we have much too, too much downtime, so to speak, just being there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like a whole life battle <laughs> for yeah. sure. Just having something to do can help you manage those thoughts. I almost like that. Uh, it's almost reminds me a bit of like a distraction technique. Oh, absolutely. Like it's getting you to be present in the moment. And almost like, let's be honest, we can all you know, relate and think about how sometimes our heads can kind of get away with us on either what be it worry, anxiety, thinking about the past, you know, over anticipating future and kind of getting stuck on that wormhole sometimes or vortex of what it could be. Um, sometimes that being present, being really in the moment and doing those things, like you said, love or enjoy doing can help bring us there, can help focus our thoughts and give us that sense of direction, right? Yeah. Yeah. Decrease the intensity of the thoughts. Yeah. Huge piece. So yeah. what I'm hearing from you before we switch to that gear of the support role, which I want the focus to kind of be around that for today's episode. But what I'm hearing for you, if somebody is maybe listening to this podcast and questioning themselves maybe and maybe feeling that struggle within themselves internally and not knowing what to do. What I heard you say is reaching out, obviously, to somebody maybe you love, being that first person, somebody you trust, somebody to start that initial conversation with. Because I know, you know, even from my own side, like personal side of things, it's realizing that a lot of this stuff is, I don't want to say normal, but I'm not the only one experiencing it. So I think sometimes realizing that can help 
a lot. Like I know it did for me. It was like, oh, I'm, I'm not completely abnormal. <laughs> this is a very common thing. So I think kind of almost getting that validation in a way. Yes. And then also, you know, maybe getting yourself hooked up with like talking about it with your doctor or somebody you trust in that kind of more professional means as well. Maybe starting that conversation. Yeah. I don't know what people's, sometimes the companies you work for, they have, you know, EFAP. So a family assistance programs like benefits basically. So sometimes you have yes. those therapists that you can just even have a, a conversation with to kind of give you more information and point you in the right direction and then so that being two different things that you can do but I also heard for you kind of mentioning how important it becomes to basically fuel ourselves as well so especially you know during those trouble times no doubt a little bit more so than others but how essential it is to be taking that time for us to take that time to do things we love that brings us joy so maybe when we're struggling the most even trying to do a couple of those things um, just to help us feel a tiny bit of positivity no doubt you know we go through times that we need that extra support and help but i find sometimes we can when we can step back and do that positive thing for ourselves, sometimes that can be a great start. Yep. And I think it's always good to try to see if you can figure that out, what those are, before you end up in a crisis. Because then it might be more easier to actually, you know, take some time to be able to do it during those intense moments. One of my biggest things that I've discovered, too, is uh, peer support with people who've had lived experience related to what you're going through or just lived experience with mental illness. And that's big. And sometimes that's like, sometimes we think we don't know people with that, you know, like we don't know people who mm -hmm. have those experiences. Cause you know, I know we've come a long way in society and we're continuing hopefully to go in that direction, but I still don't feel it's as talked about as maybe as common as it actually is, you know? So by starting that conversation, like for me, I try to be a leader in that way to be very transparent about my own experience so that it gives that source of, oh, hey, I do know somebody who's actually going through it versus I don't feel it's kind of commonplace in conversation yet. So maybe just asking the question to somebody you love, um, starting that conversation, you might be surprised what you actually hear back. Yeah, and that's been my experience too. When you're actually open with it, you'll be, yeah, you're surprised. Yeah, because yeah. I promise you, everybody knows at least one person who's either gone through something or currently struggling. Yeah. And I think that that was really eye-opening too. And then also as an occupational therapist, you know, because we worry about returning to have getting people back to functioning or some type, level of functioning again, we're not concerned about their diagnosis. So it's all about trying, okay, what's going on with you now? And what can we help you establish to help you get back to that functioning and not really worrying about the label of it. So I think that makes me want to talk. That's just a gay thing, maybe more open to talk to people about it because I wasn't worried about the label. I was looking at it from a functioning perspective. Oh, that's beautiful. Like that's such positive use of language too, right? Because I think sometimes mm -hmm. we can get really stuck on those labels and almost fixate versus in reality, like even if you label it, like I, I, once again, I'll speak for myself. So the anxiety piece is something that's a very 
familiar <laughs> hat that I've wore before. And speaking to people who've had anxiety, yes, there might be commonalities, but there's still huge variety within that scope of how people experience it. So I think sometimes when we get stuck in a label, we can assume a certain experience, which I think it's very important to step back and inquire because I think individuals, we go through stuff very differently. And I think sometimes when we use those labels, we almost assume a lot more. That's one thing that really, I guess, blew my mind in a way was when my husband, Mark, became sick. And, you know, when we look at the signs, there probably were signs building up to it. But definitely in that moment, it was like, what is happening? And one of the things that really, it was a huge learning experience was, you know, when I started working with clients in mental health and addictions, I would always, I know at times I used the phrase, I understood what they were going through. And I actually think it's so embarrassing now because I know I didn't understand. I had no idea. And now after going through the experience with Mark, as just a family member, you know, obviously his own experience is separate too. It, it was, it's mind blowing. It's actually much, made me much better at my work. I'm way better at it because of it. Yeah. Like just, and think of how, so you've had this huge life experience and no doubt we'll, we'll definitely get into how your life experience and how your professional experience really combined to help you. And as you said, no doubt is it's positively impact the way you show up with your clients. But I almost take it back to like, you know, a more general approach too, is remembering that is when we show up with individuals, we only know what we know. We only know based on our experience, based on what we've learned. And if there's anything I've learned, you know, in the last 39 years of my own life, it's, I don't know nothing. <laughs> like yeah. it's that continuous, I, in five years, I will look back and realize what I didn't know. And so I guess mm -hmm. the reason I, I'm bringing attention to that is being gentle with each other. You know, we might not experience, are we assuming that we know what the person is feeling? And then, you know, being reminded that we might be experiencing a certain event, a similar event, but again, there's so much uniqueness to us as individuals and how we experience things. So I think it becomes extremely important to, yeah, that, that whole statement, because it cringes me when you said it too, like that, oh, I know what you're going through. It's like we might, we can relate, we can, we can relate. empathize, we can comprehend, but I think it's very important to remember we don't want to assume somebody else's feelings. Let's get them telling us about it versus assuming we know exactly what they're experiencing kind of thing. I think it's a great reminder. Yeah. You know, I can remember teaching DBT skills or dialectical behavioral therapy to people managing anxiety and going through like uh, addiction and mental health. And I was giving the tools. And then like a year later, I actually experienced the anxiety side of things. So for me, it was like, oh, <laughs> what I was saying is, um, yeah, it's a lot harder than that, Jill. And yeah, it was just that realization, which, like you said, it complemented my professional approach from then on after. So I guess just being opened to that we don't know everybody's experience kind of thing and just be careful with the language because sometimes that can be really off-putting too when people um, 
when people assume, when people know, it's not giving that space to create that conversation or relation in a way. Yeah, like to build that rapport. Yeah. Is that, you know, you're not getting off to a very good start when you say something like that. So I'm glad I learned it early in my career versus later. I think it's a beautiful lesson to learn. And it's, like I said, you could take it now to every basic interaction that you do, not <laughs> even just tied with mental health and stuff like that. So. And still be mindful that everyone's journey with mental health is different. Yeah. Oh, super important. You know, I think about, you know, Merck's situation, you know, and us as a, as a family unit, we've been very fortunate. And I try to always be mindful of that as, as uh, too. I think that's one of the positives I was able to see, you know, after some time and going through the process. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Healing. <laughs> In the moment, it might be hard, but great for yeah. you to have that ability to pull on those things that you're appreciative for or that you can see those things as well. Yeah. You know, and still, I think that sometimes the, the things you can get stuck with, the negatives or the challenges faced by those experiences can still creep up at times. And then I think it's always good to just keep going back to what's been positive from that experience. What have you taken away and what's helped and made life different? Mm. Power, right? Power in reframing mm -hmm. that, you know, taking what could be a very negative moment throughout your experience, but how you can even take that and allow that to help impact you positively moving forward. Like how many, how many times can you relate to, I will never do that as a professional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Sometimes the greatest yeah. lessons in life comes from other people's mistakes. If we're open to it, right. To allow it to impact yeah. us. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think one of the healing, another healing thing it reminds me of that's helped with this is, you know, sharing our experience with others. You know, students, as they're going through the occupational therapy program, for example, just to share that story to give them um, a bit more information when they eventually begin their practice. Yeah, so that kind of brings me to, so like we can, we can jump into what family support looks like, but like I just want to honor how much more equipped you would have come to this than most people, right? So you've already yes. had your experience professionally with mental health. So I guess, you know, thinking about or trying to relate, Chris, to maybe people who don't have that professional experience and what does support actually look like? Yeah. Yeah, I think about, I mean, one thing that always stands out is being there for someone and letting them know you're there. Even if they're going through like an active psychosis or a mania or something where their mind is very altered in that moment, I think just being present can make a difference or also respecting what that person's requests are or decisions, for sure. And I think also one of the things that I definitely learned from my own personal experience was if someone has a thought that you know is not rational or you know it's not something they would say normally for whatever reason, I think it's important not to agree with it. Don't agree with it, but then also don't disagree with it either. Stay neutral. Because I think if you try to counteract it, it can cause, it can push them away because they might think you're against them, which is my own personal experience. Or if you agree with it, they might think more and more what they're experiencing is actually real. And it could make the situation even more difficult. So that's something that's actually like, you need to be... So I love it that you prefaced it with being present because that's technically what you have to be to 
hear what people are saying, right? And be aware of how you're showing up and responding. So you said stay neutral. Let's break that down. What does that actually look like to people? Um, like, I guess sort of almost going with the flow of what that person's doing in that moment. But then one thing I found interesting too, like just go with the flow, not to sort of agitate the person. Like it's definitely a bit of a fine line mm -hmm. because, you know, there could be chaos going on inside your home too. And so maybe that's causing problems or there's other people affected in the home. But for my own situation, it probably would have been best because there was no other factors, I guess, affecting someone at home. It was just myself and Mark. So I think it's trying to be mindful of what's supporting the family in this situation, but then also what's supporting the individual and try to make decisions around that. Hmm. And trying to also be aware of what's available in your community for emergency services. Like we're lucky where I'm, where I'm living now in Nova Scotia, we have a mental health mobile crisis team. And so one of the big things I think that was key for eventually my husband to start to begin recovery or start the process initially was just making mobile crisis aware of my, of my experiences with him at home or things that he was up to even outside of the home that he would tell me about. Because that helped him, I guess, just build collateral for when there was eventually a time where Mark was ready to get help and was uh, in the position to get it. Okay, so you're talking from yourself as a support right now, let's say, like that family member support, because uh, I just want to like take a check yeah. a second to recap. So you said, because uh -huh. I asked, how can we support? The first thing was letting them know you're there. So being very present in the moment is what I heard you say. Right. I heard you talk about, you know, not disagreeing with people or maybe challenging a statement that you might feel is not rational because yeah. then they're going to come. And let's be right. honest. Well, to stay neutral. Yeah, because just think about that for ourselves. You know, like when you feel somebody's trying to tell you you're wrong, you get defensive and you, you shut down listening and you stop that communication. Right. So that sounds like I absolutely can comprehend that one for sure, a big one. So maybe not overly agreeing, but still just holding the space to keep the conversation maybe going. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then the third piece, what I'm hearing coming from you right now is knowing your supports. So in your community, in, you know, the province, the state, the city where you live for yourself as a support, knowing what's out there, maybe not just even for yourself only like that support role, but also for that loved individual that you're trying to support as well. What kind of resources might be there to tap into? Is that correct? Yeah. 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 It's actually look at to try to begin a process of trying to get them help. But it always comes down to when the individual is ready in most cases. Which let's name that <laughs> like that can be really right. hard too. like as we you know, I think another thing we can all relate to listening today's topic is, you know, it's easy sometimes for other people to see what's wrong and I think when we're in it, sometimes it's hard to know it for ourselves. So I guess, you know, even before maybe that person is ready, what would be, if you have any advice to help kind of create that safe space to talk about it, to maybe help encourage that reflection for them as an individual? Because I know 
you know, once again, going back to that abruptness, it's going to shut down the conversation and it's going to draw that wedge. So maybe if that person might not be ready at that moment, what's some things that you've seen be very useful in the past to help get people maybe the education that they need? Having a conversation with the individual, just, you know, having being very open and trying to create a non, a very non-judgmental safe space to have the conversation to see what they might tell you. And then I think another big thing I think about is you've got to make sure um, you take care of yourself and even just some of the basics, making sure you try to get sleep, do your best to eat and, you know, do your best to have some structure for the day, even though you probably could be worrying through the whole day. Because at least then you can be still there for that individual if something happens or if you're needed in that moment. Because that could actually make the difference between the person maybe going to getting uh, looked at by a healthcare professional at that moment or not. That's a huge thing that I don't think is talked about a lot, Chris, is, you know, I think sometimes we can really focus on other people and, and almost like forcing people to get help. But when you talk about like making sure you're taking care of yourself, there's so much that speaks to me when you do that. Not only are you, you're setting yourself up to like be resilient and be supported and, yes. you know, investing in yourself, which let's be honest, we, we can't give when we're kind of depleted. We can't give from scarcity kind of thing. But exactly. I think another element that's coming up as you're talking about it, I think it serves as a, I'm not just telling you, I'm practicing it. Like it comes from that, I'm leading by example. It's not just words. I am trying to do the things that I'm talking about as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I realized that's what worked for me. And, you know, am I perfect at it all the time? No, but I always come back to it. Yep. And I'll always do a rechecking. You know, and in the past few months, I've sort of restarted this. Actually, I discovered it probably a couple of years ago. Was to try my best to have one, like one day off a week. So I get two days off a week in my case. I try to have one day off a week where I have no commitments. And I can choose just to be in my pajamas all day. I love because it. I find it, it's such a, it gives me such a recharge. And I could be watching, you know, I could be cooking and baking through the day and literally watching shows or, you know, actually trying to read a book because I sort of go back and forth between wanting to read at times, but just doing something I love. And it could be going out for a walk, but I really just try to have no commitments for one day. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, once again, a whole other podcast in itself right there is yes. doing the things we love and refueling ourselves. But speaking to it in relation to supporting people like as they go through a mental health challenge, I think it, it shows some tangible things that you can do as well. Like it's really hard as it can be, really hard as you go through it to feel normalcy, right? And so to yes. be able to be present in a task or a habit or a hobby can sometimes be like it's not an understatement. It can sometimes be a lifesaver, right? Because it gives you that reprieve from the cycle in your head. So I think the more that our loved ones can practice those behaviors, those positive habits and, you know, self-care techniques, I think that shows people that that's something that doesn't just happen. It's something that we need to make that conscious effort for as well. Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, when I think our household was in crisis, 
you know, and I guess I myself was, you know, trying to figure out how to manage the situation, even just trying to get, you know, an evening here or a morning here to have some time for that care, you know, when I wasn't in the position at that time to actually have a whole day. It couldn't mean getting up one hour earlier in the morning before Mark got up. Or, you know, it could have been maybe going out and seeing a friend for an hour in the evening just to get me outside of the house. Something that wasn't connected at that time to work or the chaos that was going on at home. Big, big, big pieces um, to help people kind of stay fueled and stay resilient as they go through the role of support as well. And I just want to, because like as you're talking, the term guilt is, you know, no doubt something that people will have to face, right? Like we can talk about self-guilt all day long. (laughs) There's loads of layers there. But knowing somebody struggling, having that person in your life struggling and doing things for yourself, that refueling, that resilience piece. Can you help us reframe maybe to the listeners, you know, when they might feel that guilt, what might be a nice reframe for them or how were you able to convince yourself to take time out to invest in you as your loved one was maybe struggling? Biggest one for me was when I felt like I had, I have no control of that individual's behavior. So I had no control over my husband Mark's behavior for a very long time in the sense of, you know, the, I guess, be able to guide him or help him get help. Um, he wasn't interested. And therefore, you know, I couldn't make him get help. So he was going to do what he was going to do, whether I was at home crying or, you know, in a ball or angry. Um, so why not go and do something instead? Because it would give me that distraction. But then it also made me give me something else to talk about or something else not to think about. And then I was able to be more clear-headed when I came back in the house again. Yeah, it's... I mean, I never knew what I was going to see sometimes when I came in the house either. Yeah, but that's, like, so what I'm hearing from you, Chris, like, just as, like, somebody outside the situation, that's a, that's a lot of self-awareness, right? To have that, okay, if I step away from this situation right now, I might actually show up better. I might be more of an ally for them. I might be more of a support them if I can take that reprieve for myself, fill my tank up, then maybe I might be actually more useful to them. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I facilitate a families matter. We call it families matter here in Nova Scotia. And it's based on a program in the UK, the Meridian family program. And that is one of the biggest challenges in facilitating the families matter is getting family members and it's whoever the individuals identify as their family to make themselves a priority in the chaos. It is the hardest sell. And I think, you know, I can say it now because it's hindsight for me, but I know that if I ever go through an experience like this again, it'll definitely like I'll be. I guess with anything, when you have some experience and you experience it again, I'll be much better prepared and focused on doing what I can for me. I I get so excited just like as a human being hearing other human beings acknowledge that, yeah, we do. Like life is hard, you know, getting through life, you know, as an individual is tough and supporting those we love is tough too. So you know, the more that we acknowledge that, the more we have these open conversations, we can realize and hopefully reframe that it's not about it's selfish to take time for you. It, it needs to be a priority as well. 
Yeah, because you can't be there. If you're putting everyone else ahead of yourself, you actually can't do that to the best of your ability if you're not taking care of yourself first. And I also find it's kind of like, a, oh, you're telling me what to do. You know, like when somebody is just focused on your behavior or you getting better. For me, it's like, yeah. wait a second. <laughs> like there's a little disconnect of, I don't see you practicing this. I see you barking at me. Um, and that mm-hmm. can also draw like a big wedge in a time that you really want to create connection and support sometimes in our yes. relationships too. And I think that was another big takeaway, you know, when I have, because I'm open about our, our the experience I had as a family member with Mark, I find people will talk more about their own situations and own experiences or something they're going through now. And I find one of the biggest pieces that I learned from my own experience was that that sort of sometimes made me a bit stressed out was people trying to give me advice or suggestions of, oh, you should do this now, you should do that now. Whereas I wish that people just had to listen and provide comfort. I don't know if it would have been as stressful because some of those suggestions or advice that I did take probably weren't the best ones at the time. But I mean, that's also very unique to what Mark and I experienced too. But that that kind of brings us back to the first of the conversation with you, Chris. It's that assumption piece, right? Sharing, being open with our stories is a beautiful thing that we can help support each other with, but not limiting the other person that they're going to experience exactly what you have. Or, you know, like even if we talk about self-care tools, you talk about baking and cooking being of a positive for you. It's not going to be that for everybody. So I think no. having that reminder that here's tools that helped me, they might not help you, but it's going to give you an idea of some different techniques and tools that you might be able to do to help yourself. Yeah. It's really about trying to discover, yeah, what's what's meaningful to you. Yeah. Going back to occupational therapy, what actually is meaningful to you to help you manage some of the challenges you face in life? Yeah, I like that uniqueness. It gives room. So all about, all for sharing. Sharing is caring. It's kind of like a tagline <laughs> for me with my niece and nephew. Uh, but yeah, just being open to not everybody will experience it the same. So I think because you just mentioned the people giving advice and maybe you taking it and it wasn't the best fit, it's it's just nice to remind people that you might be giving advice with best intention, but also realize we don't 100% know anybody else's experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can't stress that enough. Yeah, huge one. Okay, so let's let's set some tools up. As we just talked about, we don't want to push our tools on anybody else, but let's give people some skills that maybe they can have in their, I like to refer to the tool belt in life, some things yeah. to maybe equip each other with so that when we're in these conversations with our loved ones who are maybe struggling, what some tools or skills that we can we can give each other right now and talk about. And so there's four different skills actually that we cover in the Families Matter program. And there's four different ones. So I'll just give you what they all are at first. So it's noticing the positives, asking for what you want, expressing difficult feelings, and listening, or as I like to call it, active listening. And when you look at some of the general resources out there related to you know, families and mental illness. There's not a lot, but this is one of the big things that 
is considered that families can do is communication skills and problem solving skills. And I love that you can use these skills even when the person is actively ill. You can still use these. Yeah, it's giving so, something tangible, right? Like that's yeah, that's huge. And I would even say this doesn't have to be if somebody is just struggling with mental health. Like sometimes it could just no. be really good communication skills. <laughs> yeah. It actually probably is just a reworded, um, you know, literature that I've seen around assertive communication skills. It's, these are just reworded differently, but they still would fall under assertive communication skills. But I don't. You know, and you can use these when someone's actively using a substance. Or, you know, I've used it with clients when they're in distress in my office, you know, things like that. So you're right, you can use them anywhere. Okay. At any time. So now, now let's deep dive on all four of them. So the first one you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said notice the positives. Take me through that yeah, one. Or noticing the positives. Okay. So you'll see a theme in, all, in the first three anyway, is you want to look at the person and gain their full attention. And, you know, call them by name and say exactly what they did that pleased you and tell them how you felt by it. So, you know, when we were, were doing these, uh, this training, um, you know, it could be just simple that your child or a loved one took the garbage out after the meal or cleaned the dishes off the table. And you got to so really understand how you're feeling about it. It could be, you know, I'm really happy you did that. It allowed me to feel less stressed and rushed in the evening. I feel more relaxed. So I like it, Chris, because you elaborated on it. Like you named the positive, but you also really relate it to what or how, how that felt for you, how that yes. impacted you. So why is yeah. that important? Because you only know your feelings. You don't know anyone else or how it's impacting them. You just know how it impacted you. I think it like from from talking about it right now, like it's also it's kind of teaching people to talk about feelings a little bit too. Right. It is. Yeah. It's interesting. It's bringing up that conversation. Yeah. That it. Yes. Without doubt. Cause let's be honest, some people can get really scared <laughs> and it's not, it wasn't like growing up. It wasn't a commonplace. Like, you know, I can think about feelings. No. There's a lot of stuff that was way more internal versus now over the years, you see it really kind of being, emphasize how important it is to address our feelings and talk about it you know and also how yeah and how you word that and say it how it affects your interpersonal relationships as a result yeah i've only ever seen it improve them over time still knowing that you can't control how someone's going to react to it because you can't control their behavior and i think like so it's it's giving so many like even just this one i think is a huge one because you're showing the way, you're kind of acknowledging how you feel, why you feel it. You're also bringing light to something positive that happened because let's be honest, as we support each other, sometimes it's really easy to get stuck in all of the negative that's happening. And then that yes. actually impacts the relationship in a negative way, right? It allows the conversation just to be about the negatives. So having that reprieve from the negative, I think can be a real source of, um, relationship builder. Yes, exactly. And it's a great skill just to, you know, just focus on that one skill for a while and keep using that. Because yeah, like you said, it can change that atmosphere of negativity. Or, you know, if the person who's actively ill is feeling defensive and feeling attacked, it could break that as well. Yeah. 
beautiful, beautiful. So awesome. I love it. And anything we're positives, hey, I'm all in for. Um, yeah. But okay, so let's jump into skill two. So you said ask, or what was it? Ask for what you want? Yeah, ask or asking for what you want. Walk us through. And, and so again, it's the same thing as last time. You want to look at the person, gain their full attention and say their name. And say exactly what you would like them to do. And tell them how you would feel if they did it. So that going back to the previous example, you know, you could say, Zach, I would really appreciate it if you would uh, put the dishes in the dishwasher or clear the dining room table after supper. Because it will uh, help me feel a bit more relaxed and calm for the evening. So it's almost, you know, I guess in the other one, you're, someone's already doing it. But uh, with this one, you would hope they would do it. I like the adding on though too, right? Like, first of all, again, anything talking about feelings I love um, because I think it promotes some really substance conversation. But, you know, like when we can ask people to do something we want, I think sometimes it's really easy to get like on the lists, like do this, do this, do this. I need this done. I need this done. <laughs> and it becomes really overwhelming. So I think when you can be clear of why you want something done too, it can help build maybe a little bit of understanding of why you're asking them what to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then they're not getting defensive that you're just asking them to do something you want to do it yourself. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So yes. two amazing skills. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Let's go to the third. Uh, third one, express, and correct me if I got this wrong, expressing what you're feeling. Yeah, or expressing difficult feelings. Oh, difficult feelings. Okay, yes. Name that one. Yeah. So again, let's look at the person, gain their full attention, say their name. And you say exactly what they did that upset you. You tell them how you felt as a result. And you do something to try and resolve the issue that led to you having these feelings. So an example with this would be, you know, Zach, I didn't appreciate it that you took my car keys without asking. I would appreciate it that we could make a plan that if you need the car keys just to come and ask me for them instead. So like listening to you, once again, it's, it's as opposed to just having these short little communication bursts, like leaning back on a little bit of my communication, like the, just the practicing I do in my work, it's, you're talking about the interests, about like why it's important or, you know, why you were actually hurt or why you felt this more negative feeling. And you're, it's almost like you're not expecting the other person to know exactly what you're feeling. You're kind of honoring them and naming it and creating an understanding. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think, you know, another way, because I think I might have used the you in that part too, because that's another big thing. I think about general communication skills is a, a, avoid using the word you sometimes because people being very defensive with it. Yeah. So when I think about the one with Zach, you know, you took your key, uh, my keys were taken without my permission. I would prefer that you ask for, for that uh, someone asks for permission when they need my keys, <laughs> something like that. Trying to really avoid that you, it is a bit tricky. Yeah, the I statements. And that's something like if you're not, so if I'm saying I statements and you're like, what's she talking about? It's something really easy to look up. They're hard to perfect for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think what I would suggest with I statements is they get you conscious about what you're saying and they yeah. kind of help you uh, defuel sometimes your terminology. Because you're right, like the you, just think about it. You did that. 
And just think when somebody says the word you, you can get super defensive. So with you, I think I always use the caveat of use it wisely. <laughs> it's all in how you say it. Is their tone? Yes. Is their judgment? Because if so, you got to get rid of it kind of thing. And I find it's more, it's more intense when someone's actively ill because they can be more sensitive to language. Oh, like, which is something that I think all of us, like as, as humans, I think we can be very sensitive to language. I think there's terminology that sometimes really trigger us uh, over different terminologies. I think it's very varied. I don't think, it, once again, I don't think you could ever assume what's a trigger word and what's not because we all have our different experiences. But I think it's something to be, you're right, extra cautious as people are maybe going through not even just mental health challenges, but maybe stressful times. I find people get, or they easily get shut down by language a lot of the times. Yes, so true. So just being aware of kind of how you're saying it. So if you're naming, you know, the difficult feeling that you're feeling, is being open to how do I say this with maybe less heat? How do I say this with less judgment? Is there a way to make it a little bit more neutral? Yeah. Two questions I have for you on this. First question, because it's hard, like even in our best days to name those difficult feelings when we're not feeling them. So Tell us why it's going to be important for people struggling with mental health, for those supports to really be able to have those honest conversations with them. Because I think you want to be upfront as to how you're feeling in this stressful situation, you know, however long it's been going on. And then it also will be a lead in for the other person to want to share how they're feeling too. And that could generate another conversation about maybe seeking help or getting help. So what I'm hearing is by you standing up with the courage that it takes to have that harder conversation, you can actually encourage them to have harder conversations with you moving forward. Yes, exactly. Because then they might all of a sudden realize in conversation with you, it's like, oh yeah, I have been more irritable lately. Or, you know, I haven't been sleeping. Maybe it is time to go talk to someone. Good point. And it could lead into that for sure. Nice. Once again, practicing what we want to see more of. It's yeah. not just about telling the other person what to do, the more that we can practice it. First of all, I think it brings a lot of empathy for how hard it can be. The more we practice it, we understand, oh, this is hard. <laughs> so maybe yeah. I'll be gentle with people as they do it to me kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I think it's always good to practice it like on your own at first in the mirror and whatnot yeah. before you try to use it, you know, especially in a social situation like that with someone actively ill. Yeah. Yeah. To get clearer and conscious, like it's one th thing to think about what we were going to say, but another thing to say it, I think yes. by you talking about that run through what you want to say, I think it's such an asset because sometimes it can take the heat out from us. Sometimes yeah. we can really react in a moment or yell at somebody and it's like, oh, maybe I should have took 10 minutes before to calm down. Exactly. <laughs> I've learned that, got the t-shirt. Oh, I'm still <laughs> learning it. <laughs> I consciously teach this stuff to be conscious of our wording and communication and 
it's hard, right? Like it's, it it's, it's about trying to bring that awareness into our, our language, into our communication with each other. And I think the more we can practice that and realize how hard it is, the more supportive we can be for other people who are trying as well. Yeah. Right. The other question I had, because I said I had two to do with that All one, right. <laughs> is you mentioned with these three skills, look at them and say their name. Walk me through why you're giving that as a suggestion. Because you're acknowledging and being respectful of the person that you're interacting with. And you also want to make sure that they're engaged with you in that moment as you're speaking. So it's almost like you're setting a stage to be present. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and try to set a stage of uh, having a respectful, I guess, set the stage for a respectful conversation. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. Big time. Okay. So let's get to the fourth. The fourth is not only a huge way to support people who are going through yes. any obstacles in their lives, mental health, life challenges, stress. I think it's just a basic human skill. Um, so I can't... I can't be an advocate for this one enough, but the act of listening, walk us through what that actually looks like. So I think it's so important too, because it, we can be so distressed in a, a crisis situation that we forget to actively listen. And so you really want to look towards the person who is speaking and adopt like, um, you know, an open posture, you know, not your arms crossed, um, you know, standing with your, with, uh, you know, legs parallel, and then have eye contact with an individual speaking, concentrate on what they're saying and focus on that. And encourage the speaker with, you know, nodding your head, uh, saying something to acknowledge you're listening. And then ask clarify, clarifying questions to check that you understand what they're meaning. And then a good way to sort of confirm that at the end is to summarize what you just heard. Because then if the person, you know, I guess the big thing with this I find is that if the person hears back what they're saying, that may change what their thoughts are because they could be communicating to you an irrational or delusional thought or, you know, a thought that's coming out of being actively ill with mania or psychosis. And I think like to even add on to that with even out all of those factors, which are huge factors, language, sometimes we we get messed up. We make mistakes. We say the wrong things. So it becomes super easy to misunderstand each other, sometimes even misunderstand ourselves. Yes, of course, right? You know, and that can make a big difference on whether that individual it feels safe enough to stay in that home where you can keep a better eye on them as to what's going on or if they're going to storm out in distress. Huge. Okay, so it's funny because like all of the ones you've named, very familiar to me as well uh, with communication, with conflict yeah. resolution, a lot of the skills, same thing. Uh, but okay. I, I love it. I love the reminder of being open. So the open posture you said. So things like, let's do a checklist right now, guys. So if this is something that needs to be brought to your attention, grab a pen, grab a sheet of paper, start writing them down so it can serve as reminders. So remembering that open posture. All that means, not crossing your arms. Think about you're trying to encourage a conversation, basically. So you're going to be attentive in the moment with people. Eye contact, beautiful thing. So it's keeping not only you accountable to being present, it's also showing the other person that you're there and you're listening as well. Uh, focus on what you're saying. Was that 
was that one of them that you said as well? Focus on yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, focus on what's being said. Oh, beautiful. By the individual. Okay, so being present once again, because I don't know yeah. if anybody else can empathize here, but sometimes, especially when you're having those harder conversations, you know what you want to say in your head, and we can sometimes fixate on that. And I think if we fixate on that, we lose being present in the moment with people and we're likely to miss what's actually being said. Yeah, so, so right. Yeah. Perfect. Um, I also heard encouragers. So those were, they can be nonverbals or verbals. So the, yeah. uh, hum, yeah. I'm nodding your head or sometimes like I'm, I use my hands a lot, <laughs> but an encourager basically just means I'm encouraging the conversation. I'm giving yeah. them the space to continue on in dialogue, basically. I'm not going to interrupt them. Next one I heard from you, Chris, was clarifying questions. So making sure you understood correctly. If there's maybe something you didn't quite understand, asking a question for them to elaborate a little bit more. Tell me about that. What did that look like to you? As opposed to just assuming that you know what the person meant by maybe even saying the word sad, mad, overwhelmed, right. like what yeah, did that look exactly. like to you? Tell me more about that. And then I also heard one of my favorite ones as well, the summarizing. So summarizing, I'm going to take, this is exactly what I've just done with Chris, FYI, is taking the information he's given, but I'm giving it back to say, is this actually what I heard? Is that correct? Is that what you were trying to tell me? And it kind of does two things. It firms up what you heard to say, hey, was this right? And it shows the other person empathy. It shows that you're actually listening uh, to what they're saying. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And that can make a huge difference in the conversation. Oh, huge. In all conversations. These are life skills, Chris, yeah. not just <laughs> yes. yeah. support rural skills. Okay, so you gave us... Four of those communication skills, the noticing the positives, naming your feelings uh, attached to that, also asking for what you want, uh, naming the feelings attached to that about what that could create, expressing what you're feeling that's difficult, maybe if something challenging happens, really naming that, again, attaching the feelings that it brought up, giving meaning behind that. Then the fourth one, which is a really layered one as well, is that act of listening. Got it. Okay, sweet. So those were the four textbook kind of skills you kind of give out, maybe in the people that you support uh, throughout your professional career. Now, because you've had this personal experience, what I would ask you is maybe what some more skills that you've learned were really important throughout your own experience? Two big ones that stood out for me, for sure, was being mindful of challenging the sick person, or my husband in my case, challenging Mark's thoughts. Because Mark had all kinds of different thoughts about what was happening, either things that I was doing or things that he believed that were uh, just happening around us, so to speak. So that was the biggest I mean, you know, we learn a lot from our mistakes and that was the biggest mistake I did because it did result, as I've said a few times discussing the communication skills, it caused Mark to leave the home. And, you know, that was, that made the situation even more frightening and also more, I felt even more helpless. 
And then I think the other big thing that I wasn't always good at in that moment either was literally, like I talked about earlier, taking care of myself. You know, I'm forever grateful to those group of friends who didn't actually know me that well when all this went down, or they were just getting to know me. And then they got to see me in this huge, crazy situation. I didn't know whether I was coming or going. And so I think it was really good to have those friends to rely on. And a lot of times I was fortunate because of, you know, the situation they were in at that moment, they could drop things, you know, quickly and calm if something was going on, for example. And then I think also, um, going back to what we talked about earlier, really being mindful of my sleep. My sleep was all over the place at times because I was worrying. Um, really always making sure that at least if I wasn't sleeping well, I had food to eat. So there's food always there. And then, yeah, trying to get outside. I was sort of forced in my situation to get outside because long story short, there were no vehicles to have access at that time. And I was so used to having a vehicle. So I actually ended up walking a lot. So it was really good for me to get out and walking. And I think that's when I first realized the benefits of walking that didn't always have to entail going to a gym. And so when I look at it, because people always ask you, I find, like, how did you get through that? And I'm sure that's with anyone's health experience. And, you know, your blinders are on in many ways because you're in crisis mode. So you're in that fight, flight, or freeze response. And I was definitely in the fight back and forth between all of it, fight, flight, freeze. And I, and then I look at some of those things that did really help. And, you know, not even when you look at food, I wasn't always concerned about having a salad or making sure I was getting our vegetables. It could be that night that I really wanted to go and get, you know, order some food that I really loved or something I really wanted that I hadn't had in a long time. So that, they made a big difference. It sounds like comfort, and, like being gentle with yourself too. Yeah, being very gentle. And I think another thing too is, you know, I guess depending on your, on your influences in your life, being mindful of substance use. So be the, you know, really be mindful of alcohol and, you know, how much you're drinking, if you are, and, you know, if you're prone to other substances too. Try to be really mindful of that because it might be beneficial in the moment, but it definitely makes things a lot more worse the next day. Or they seemed, they just seem more um, heightened. Oh, that's actually, that's really good advice too, to just kind of... You know, so even when we're looking at those things that we love that we can do, maybe looking more towards a bit more healthy habits. Yeah. And do your best. And I totally get it. It's not easy. It definitely takes, you know, it definitely takes some determination. And, you know, try to be mindful of weighing the pros and cons in that moment if you can. Oh, hard life stuff for sure. Um, mm -hmm. on the best of days, it's still hard. Yeah. And then when we go through huge life challenges, like life events, stress, mental health challenges, all of those things layer on the, the difficulty that sometimes it is to do some of these basic elements. So the whole reason for the podcast is just to give you help, encourage a little bit of awareness about what we can do to support each other, but also what we can do to support ourselves if we're helping other people through it. What are some basic essential steps that can really help, you know, continue to build the conversation, continue to um, build the relationship to help it be a trusting, supportive relationship as people go through their life experiences. So another topic I'd like to address before we kind of wind down for today, Chris, is just about the education piece 
behind mental health. I know when we were kind of doing our prep conversation, you mentioned that you see it as such a big um, asset for this whole journey, for not only the person who's going through mental health, the challenge, but also the person supporting it. Do you want to talk a little bit on the education piece, why it's important, what it might look like? Oh, yeah, I can't speak enough about the education is huge because it gives you some idea of what someone could experience, you know, when they become unwell, you know, whether it's connected with a certain diagnosis or not. So then you, you can have some sense of what you're seeing at times or, you know, what when someone's talking about it, what they could potentially be experiencing with their loved one. So I found that was one big thing is really educate yourself on maybe it's what you're seeing with loved ones now or seeing a friend grow through so you sort of understand it. And in my case, it was learning about bipolar disorder. And I couldn't get over sometimes because, you know, I work in a community mental health clinic where we see people of all different walks of life and all different type of uh, function ability and, and illnesses. So, you know, we have a very generalist um, knowledge base, which is very specific. And I couldn't get over some healthcare professionals or other individuals even I've talked to outside of my work, their misconceptions about bipolar disorder or what they thought, uh, you know, might be helpful, but it probably wasn't the best decision at the time. Because, I mean, also, even though you might have two people with bipolar disorder, the experience is very different. So I think it's really important to educate yourself and understand it. Because I think some of the, you know, interpersonal relationship losses that Mark and I have experienced in our life as a result of this it's because of people's lack of education or maybe they got educated from a non-reliable source. So I think that's huge. And then I think, because that also in turn will help with the stigma. And I, that's another thing that as you can use learning experience from this is I never realized how much um, stigma there was towards mental illness. You know, that people think you eventually just get better and you'll be just fine. Whereas, you know, there's some, most, I think, you know, in period, is that you're never going to go back to that person you were after those experiences, either as the person experienced the illness or the family member. I think that's a, a beautiful thing to bring awareness to, Chris, is because I think sometimes we're trying to get back something we've had or something yes. we've experienced. And so if you don't mind, just elaborate a little bit more on that, because I think it's a huge a huge thing that maybe not everybody might be aware of. Well, I mean, you, I mean, God, it's weird. I talked to my friends actually about it just recently. It's when we go through these experiences and also like the damage that can be done with these experiences, the financial damage, I think about, um, I think about uh, employment, the changes in employment that can happen or loss of employment. And then also just how, you know, how things have gone down in those experiences as well with others and also with yourself, that how can you not be changed? I think it probably, you know, it's, I think it's brought the people in our life who are meant to be in our life. It brought us, brought them to us. Without a doubt. When I look who I was in our life now versus who was in our life when this happened, we actually have people that love us through the good, the bad, and the ugly, I say. And then I think it's brought Mark and I closer together. Because there was a lot of forgiveness that had to happen. A lot of forgiveness. You know, and sometimes, you know, I see sometimes in literature about, you know, when you learn to forgive, you don't forget. 
But I also think there had to be, I guess, some sense of forgetting. Otherwise, we would have never moved on. I guess to forgive and also forget about some of the damage or some of the challenges that the mental illness uh, caused us to face when it was active. Because yeah. otherwise, I think it could eat you inside. Well, what I hear from you, too, is the forgive and the forget piece. Sometimes, you know, yes, it will always be a part of our experience, but are we resenting it, you know? Yes. Versus... Yes leaning into it we've experienced what can we learn from it basically and i think the whole acknowledgement of addressing that we're not going to get the person back that we've had prior and nor are we going to be the person who we were prior to the event so i think that's like in a way that ties to a lot of the buddhist philosophy that i really kind of try to embed in my own life it's we change every day you know, and it's honoring that experience in each other that we aren't who we are, who we were yesterday, you know, or before this mental health challenge or before this life event. And it's not that we're changing all of a sudden, you know, we're not a different person, but we're impacted by that. And that's okay. You know, it's okay yeah. to be different. Our relationship will be different. How that looks, we get to define. Yeah, exactly right. And I think, you know, another big important piece as a family member, because we get so focused on trying to help our loved one, is also, you know, I actually think about in hindsight that the recovery process with Mark was harder than the actual crisis and chaos that we went through initially. Because then you had to start rebuilding yourself and sort of healing yourself from the ways maybe you felt you were wronged, either because of the system or because of family or friends. Or just because, you know, what the illness did related to finances or just things, I guess, yeah, then the finance piece. So it was a lot of like um, sort of moving moving on from those pieces in a way of coming coming to peace with it yourself is what it was. Which speaks to the forgiveness that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm and it took me a while to realize that because I was very focused on, you know, trying to get Mark to some type of what they would say in medical terms, a baseline or some type of uh, sense of recovery. And then you got to start looking at your how you feel, too, because maybe, you know, I know for myself, I had a lot of resentment, as you mentioned earlier, towards others and how we were treated or, you know, how they were supporting me when Mark was first going through the illness. So it appeared. But then after he came home, what we always say, um, the people disappeared because they were just so angry by the damage that was done. When you say, like, the word resentment, I always gravitate towards Nelson Mandela's kind of piece on resentment. And he he said, resentment's like taking poison and expecting the other person to die from it, you know? Because you're having these negative thoughts. That's where you're focusing your attention, that resentment, that, you know, judgment, that bitterness, when in reality, that's not impacting them at all. So you're doing more damage to yourself. Yeah. yeah. Which easy to say. Yeah. <laughs> Not always easy to practice, but that letting go piece a big thing. And then I found for you know for my own unique situation, it was also setting boundaries for people's resentment as well mm. to the situation. Oh, I like that. Boundaries is I think and you know, it's definitely a great topic to have 
like so much of what was mentioned today, you can kind of spiral off and have its own entity. But, you know, boundaries is, I, I think, a, a big topic to kind of educate yourself around because I, I see it as something that people deem as selfish again, but I really see boundaries as setting structure to healthy relationships, right? It's kind of honoring each other and the relationship you want. So I think it's a beautiful building block to when you're getting back to that rebuild phase that yes. to incorporate for sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, uh, winding down, I guess the last thing I'm going to ask you, so last question coming from me, I promise, let's hope <laughs> is maybe, you know, in hopes of coming here today, uh, and having this, episode talk about mental health and how we can support each other going through it or loved ones that we have I guess what would you like people to know what would be one big takeaway that you would want people to have that you're not alone like when you actually go through these experiences as a family member you're not alone and there are avenues wherever you are to connect with people or having similar experiences either have or act, or actively experiencing them mm. and i think the last big piece you know that comes to mind is you've got to take care of yourself and really have a clear understanding for you what that looks like yeah and i think it's a important thing to remember is you know like the airline people Philosophers beyond their time say, you know, put on the own oxygen mask before I can assist with anybody else. So when we're trying to help other people, I think it's beautiful and that's a wonderful sometimes intention. But how are we taking care of us too? So it becomes almost a place of integrity. How can I show some of those positive behaviors, positive habits to help really kind of encourage the people we love to do them too, maybe? Yeah. Exactly. Well, Chris, what can I say? Uh, so much gratitude over to you right now just for taking not only, you know, the last past hour to talk to me, but also just your vulnerability and your transparency on the topic and your own experience. I am somebody who values that type of honesty, and I think it just helps us make the world a little bit better when we can speak from our own experience and name it so that it can hopefully help somebody else as they go through their own. So just lots of gratitude for you for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Jill, because I do, I, I want to share my experience to hope to help others. And then it's also, it's also supporting my healing because, you know, even though this happened now a few years ago, my, our healing is ongoing with it. Beautiful, beautiful opportunity to take something. It's kind of take this huge life thing that can be really deemed as negative and help it or help. What I see is you owning it right now. I see you not letting it be this negative experience and you continuing to let it impact you professionally, but also help sharing your experience to help other people. So you're taking what could be a very negative life experience and bringing positivity to it. So good on you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And then always recognizing, you know, as we've talked about many times uh, today, 
is that you know it is unique to everyone in America and our story. We're very lucky how well it turned out. Again, gratitude, Chris. Just thank you. Much appreciation. Hope those listening today, you got some tidbit, some skills, something that you can take away to help in your relationships with those people that you love and you're trying to support. Remember always, as Chris, as I emphasized again today, is the importance of taking care of yourself. It's beautiful to do good out in the world. I love it. I encourage it. Fueling yourself becomes essential, helps us give quality as opposed to giving from that place of scarcity. With that being said, always remember to take that conscious time and power yourself. 